0: Is your host, Brian. McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week of Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 187, covering the week of September 16th through September 20th, 2019. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute, and of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. If you don't want to search for all those social media accounts, just go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see all our social media buttons. Just click on those. It'll take you right to those accounts. Also, click on that little Amazon button. That is our Amazon Smile account. If you want to support the Institute in a way that is painless while you're shopping at Amazon, you click on that button, you shop at Amazon, we get a little cut of whatever you buy. So it's a great way to support the Institute, and you don't even have to do anything for it. Just shop at Amazon like you normally do. You can also give us an email address while you're there. We'll give you a free ebook, and you'll get our daily Dopes of Dixie money through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday and Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. Also, don't forget to download our free mobile app. Just go to your app store on your mobile device, search for Abbeville Institute. It'll come up with our application, again, free of charge, and you can get the Abbeville Institute on the go. That gives you access to our podcast, our lectures, and, of course, a mobile access to the website. It's a great way to keep up with us, and, again, free of charge. Virtually everything we do at the Abbeville Institute is free of charge. If you want to support the Institute, you can go to abbevilleinstitute.org. At the top of the page, you'll see a tab that says support. Click on that. You'll have donor options. You can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. All of that is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. So if you like what we do, you like our podcast, you like our website, you like all the programs that we do, please consider a tax-deductible donation to help the Abbeville Institute and help us continue to explore what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition you can also support the institute institute while you're at that tab that says support click on the thing that says shop you can purchase your abbeville institute apparel hats golf shirts t-shirts all kinds of great embroidered apparel so it is nice stuff high quality it will not fade in the washing machine so you get these embroidered materials you wear them around people ask hey what is that abbeville institute thing you can tell them or what is that logo you got on your shirt and you can tell them all about us so all kinds of ways to support what we do. And of course, always share our material on social media. Rate this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great way to let people know you like what we do and you appreciate the material that we put out on a regular basis. All right. Well, let's talk about that material. So we had five really interesting articles this week. um, And all of them have to do with regionalism in a way. um, In celebration of regionalism. And Uh, I think that that's one. Somebody sent an email uh, not long ago that saying, you know, y'all don't do enough. You just talk about the war all the time. Well, clearly this person hadn't looked at our website. We have over a thousand articles on the website now. And and, uh, I mean, it's a virtual online library, but we've done a lot of things on on, uh, subjects that are not the war. Um, and we've done a lot with Southern culture. We've done things with Southern religion. We've done things with, uh, of course the founding generation, early Southern history, we've done a lot of stuff, but I thought it was nice to, to do something this week because of the article on barbecue. I thought, all right, well, let's, let's do something, not just with that. We'll do something on music too. So the Friday piece covers some music and it's, it's a, a week of affirmation. Um, we started the week with a piece on John C. Calhoun by a young professor named John Grove. Now, this piece was originally published at the Imaginative Conservative, which is also a very good website. Uh, they, they publish uh, some good articles here and there, and um, this article appeared there, I think, a couple of years ago. But I thought it was a nice addition to our website to have it here. and we, They run our material quite a bit, and we run theirs at times, so um, it's a nice collaborative effort when it works out. And so we ran this piece by John Grove, and it's on Calhoun. And it has to do, and we've we've discussed this before, and of course last week we had the issue with Professor Gelzo there, who's now at Princeton University. Um, And one of the things that the neoconservatives like to do is paint everything that's, uh, paint the South with the uh, charge of treason. Everything that's wrong in America goes back to the South. A lot of it has to do with that these people are, are, um, often uh, acolytes of Harry Jaffa, who was, or at least his intellectual tradition, which is now the Claremont Institute in California, uh, they believe that the United States was a proposition nation. And by that, they mean that the one line of the Declaration of Independence, where it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that that is the line that defines America. It was a proposition, so essentially the Declaration is a founding document. Now, the late historian Pauline Meyer, for all of her problems in some of her books, said said it best. Look, the Declaration is not a founding document, it's a defounding document. It's a document of independence, it's a document of secession. However, you can find in that document certain principles that would carry forward into American politics, but not that particular line. The thing that made that document important is, was a continuation of the ancient constitutions of Great Britain or England. If you look at the English Bill of Rights of 1688, it, it mirrors the Declaration of Independence. And, of course, this tradition of resistance to tyranny had been there since the Magna Carta of 1215, or Magna Charter. Both are fine to say, Um of 1215. So when Jefferson wrote the Declaration, this was an expression not just of the American mind, as he said, but also of the political tradition of Great Britain. It's that, it's that tradition of self-determination. And so if you look at the last paragraph of that document, that established that we had 13 free and independent states. And by free and independent states, Jefferson said, look, these states can do everything that independent states may of right ought to do, which included the state of Great Britain. He called it a state. So we had 13 independent countries in North America. These independent countries had their own unique character. Virginia was different from South Carolina, and South Carolina was certainly different from Massachusetts or Connecticut. Pennsylvania was certainly different from Georgia. These 13 states had their own independent unique character, and that's something that Southerners hung on to throughout their entire history. Even in the South today, there's a reason why college football is so popular in the South. Because it's an expression of place and state. Southerners love the South, but they also recognize that, hey, you know, Alabama is different from Georgia, which is different from Mississippi, which is different from Virginia, which is different from South Carolina. They recognize these things. It's different from Florida. They're all part of the South, and they're all part of Dixie. But that regionalism is still important, even to the people within the region itself, to recognize those differences. And it's not that they don't think that these other states aren't okay. It's not that they don't think these people from these other states aren't okay and they get along. There's a commonality there of being from the South. But they recognize those differences. And they certainly recognize those differences from outside of the South. So if you're from New York, they're going to know it. If you're from North Dakota, they're going to know it. In Look, people from North Dakota have their own culture too. People from New York have their own culture. And that's okay. The thing that was supposed to handle all of those differences was federalism. It was the, the idea that we can have a union of states. They don't have to get along on every issue. But that, that union can support those differences as long as we have a government of limited powers. A central government of limited powers. And that central government of limited powers can handle things like defense... Well, it's better to have a common defense against enemies. If South Carolina is invaded, all the other states can help out. Or if Massachusetts is invaded, all the other states can help out. And that's better for the whole. It's also better to have one voice when you're dealing with international trade. Because that one voice of international trade might be able to work out better deals with foreign powers. However, there would be no Navigation Acts, as George Mason wanted to insist course, that amendment to the Constitution wasn't ratified. This is one thing that people miss when they say, oh, the Constitution was all about slavery. Really? I mean, George Mason wanted to prevent navigation laws, which were tariffs, because he understood that these things could also be sectional in nature. So trade was fine as long as one section didn't dominate that trade, and it was for the benefit of the whole. So that union that was essential for the preservation of peace and security At least this is what the founding generation thought. And even men like John C. Calhoun thought that union was necessary, but if it was abused, it was no longer any use to anybody, I mean, north or south. And so what we often get now is Calhoun portrayed as this deep, dark, ideological secessionist. Calhoun's the racist, the white supremacist. This is ideology. Calhoun, as the John Grove piece points out, was a Republican with a lowercase r. Calhoun was an American Republican. Calhoun, more importantly, was a Unionist throughout his entire life. And Calhoun was an heir of the founding generation. He was the the last, in many ways, of the old Republicans. Now, the old Republicans themselves, this is people like Nathaniel Macon of North Carolina, did not trust John C. Calhoun. They didn't think he was enough of a purist, though he was saying the same things. And uh, Calhoun is often misinterpreted as some type of white supremacist ideologue. He wasn't any of those things at all. Even his positions on slavery were not unique. I mean, look, uh, Northerners were saying the exact same things as Calhoun was saying in his positive good speech about slavery before that point. And even during that time, because we have to remember that abolition swept the North first. And so there were people in the North who were pro-slavery and defending the institution of the North. This was the most uh, uh, non-unique part of Calhoun's political philosophy. Now, when you look at his positions on federalism, on the concurrent majority, on these type of issues, he was extremely unique and a prescient and important political thinker of the 19th century. In fact, the most important in American history. As Clyde Wilson used to tell people when they would ask about Calhoun and he still does when he was the editor of the John C Calhoun papers there at South Carolina University of South Carolina people from all over the world would come ask him questions about John C Calhoun not about Calhoun's views on race or slavery because again that wasn't the most important part about Calhoun's thought the most important part about Calhoun's thought was what as the systems that he devised to try to tackle the problems of centralization. This is what they were looking at. Calhoun, other people in the world, other people in Europe, in Asia, they could understand that you can separate the things here. I mean, we do this with Aristotle on a regular basis. We can read Aristotle and say, wow, Aristotle's brilliant. If you read politics, there's a long defense of slavery essentially in politics. But yet we don't really talk about that. We talk about the important parts of Aristotle's political and social philosophy outside of that. Moral philosophy, ethical philosophy. These are things that we talk about with Aristotle. We don't talk about his views on slavery, which he considered to be a natural thing. And that's good because we can separate the two. We can say, we don't agree with Aristotle on slavery. Important. We don't agree with that. But yet, Aristotle had some valuable things to say about society, did he not? We can say, we don't agree with Calhoun's views on slavery, but Calhoun had some valuable things to say about American political life, did he not? Did he not have things to say that were important about power and what Congress has done to the Constitution? Because Calhoun placed a lot of the blame for the problems of America on Congress. And uh, from a person who's written Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America and essentially how Alexander Hamilton screwed up America, which was supposed to be how the Supreme Court screwed up America, the one book that I haven't done is how the Congress screwed up America. This would be uh, a, a 200 plus volume set because every single Congress from the first to the present has done something to mess everything up because from the very first Congress they started punting their responsibility or they started going back on the promises that they made members of the founding generation when that constitution was ratified about what it would actually mean and do so this piece by John grove is important because what he's doing is taking down a neo a neoconservative like John Daniel Davidson at the Federalist. And Davidson said some things that are right at times. I mean, there's the neocons are right on some things at times. But when they start attacking the South, and they start saying the South is really it's just Democrats, this is where they get into the stupid Republican-Democrat dichotomy, which doesn't make any sense, uh, because there isn't really one. Um, and they start uh, talking about how the South is the major problem in American history. That's where they, they undermine their own position. Because the South was the conservative counterweight to everything that was wrong with America. The South was holding on to that founding tradition longer than any other section. And they knew it. And they knew it because they believed in that regionalism. They believed that they were an independent and separate people that needed the union, but yet understood that the union only worked if that union did what it was supposed to do which was allow for the diversity of America. I mean, the South had always been interested in diversity. The North was trying to forge a national polity, and by that, a one-people mentality. This is clear from the beginning. You can find it. They actually admit it. Now, you had Southerners that would foster the same idea as well, John Marshall being one of them. But... Certainly, Northerners clung on to this nationalism more than most. Why? Because they understood that nationalism worked for their section. You see, Northerners are just as sectional as Southerners. They just hide behind this cloak of nationalism. Southern nationalism was real nationalism. I I would say this, John Marshall, for all of his problems, was a real nationalist in that he believed that uh, the nation was best suited for all, and he certainly thought The South would be better off in that. Now, he was wrong in this account, but he certainly thought that uh, we should have a nation that benefits and burdens all equally. I mean, Marshall, I believe, was a real strident nationalist. There's a difference in this from, say, a Daniel Webster nationalism, which is just Northern sectionalism. So Marshall thought that by having a national government, you would prevent the Jacobites, the French revolutionary terrorists, from coming over and taking over the United States. What he didn't see is by advocating nationalism, you'd essentially have a revolution in America that would overthrow the Constitution. So um, this piece by John Grove is great. It's it's a great piece because he points out that the the continuity between Calhoun and the founding generation and how important Calhoun is for American political life, and he takes down the right people, the Jaffaites the Straussians, the neocons, he takes them down and he defends Calhoun. And that's important. So on that same line of where you have this regionalism, how important it was, and what I just said, you have the piece on Wednesday by Boyd Cathy on Eugene Genovese. Now, Eugene Genovese was a Marxist. Eugene Genovese Uh, was by no means, when he began his career, a pro-Southern individual at all. Um, And Genovese transformed his views, not because that he was somehow duped by Southerners. This is the argument. Well, Northerners only became pro-Southern because Southerners duped them. They, They just were too stupid, I guess, to understand that Southerners were just telling lies. Genovese became pro-Southern because Genovese read the primary sources. I remember when I was in graduate school, I had a professor. He asked this question, well, why, did you, why do you think most, most historians are leftists? And he was a leftist himself, and he said, why do you think this is? And his, his answer to his own question was, well, because I read the primary sources, I became a leftist. Uh, he was the chair of the department at the time, and I said, that's completely, and I was in his class with the chair of the department, I said, that's, that's completely false. You can't be a leftist if you read the sources, not in America, not in America, but he, he didn't, of course he's coming from a position of, well, I'm a leftist because I read the sources in the 1960s and I understood how mean spirited and nasty these people were in the, in the civil rights movement. So he became a leftist and, um, From for me, uh, looking at the founding generation, looking at the antebellum period, there was no way. If you read the documents that pertain to the Constitution, you could be anything but someone who believed in the quote-unquote compact theory, which is in fact the compact fact of the Constitution. There's there's no way you could do it. The evidence is all there. And for Genovese, there's no way you could walk away from reading all of these letters and documents having to do with the South. And not recognize that Southerners really were a unique people. And for Genovese, it was the deeply religious side of the South that made them a unique people. It's not saying that Northerners weren't religious, but Southerners, and his he actually said this. He said Southerners won the biblical arguments. He said he's no biblical scholar, but to him, Southerners won the biblical arguments. And so here's a man that wrote the most important book, one of the two most important books, on American Slavery, Roll, Jordan, Roll, The World the Slaves Made. I mean, this is a tremendous book. If you've never read this book, it is a it is something that will be transformational in your view on slavery. The other is Fogel and Engerman, and Time on the Cross. Both of these books are tremendous works on Southern history and society and slavery. And they did not see eye to eye, neither Genovese And Fogel and Engerman Engerman did not see eye-to-eye on the institution of slavery. And by that, Genovese considered slavery to be a paternalistic institution within the framework of capitalism. Genovese wrestled with that his entire life. How does these... Were were slave owners ultra-capitalists, or were they something else? And for Genovese, they were something else. They were in the capitalist world, but not of the capitalist world. To Fogel and Engerman, these slaveholders were ultra-capitalists. I mean, they were... They were the people that figured out how to maximize profit, and uh, but it's a, the, the time on the cross book is was highly controversial because in this particular book, uh, these two individuals say, "Well, um, you can't find you can find evidence of abuse of slaves and mistreatment, but they're much more rare than people recognize." And so this book was highly controversial in the '70s, because oh my gosh, you're saying that you're saying that uh, this wasn't Roots. See, people were getting their history from Roots, or from uh, nowadays it would be you know Twelve Years a Slave that film or whatever. And of course, Twelve Years a Slave. Historians in the 1980s went out and looked at, um, and this is mainstream historians went out and looked at Twelve Years a Slave, uh, and found that. There's a lot of exaggerations in this particular book. I mean, first of all, it was written through the lens of an abolitionist. And the abolitionists were prone to do these things. And they couldn't verify that. Now, if this did happen. I mean, Solomon Northrop was kidnapped. And unfortunately, kidnapped, brought to the South, forced into bondage for 12 years until he was finally released. And Southerners were very quick to do this, by the way, when they figured out this guy was not a, the, the Southern legal system, this guy was not a slave. I mean, he was a free man. Um, but the way that the the language used, I mean, they're suspicious of of some of the things that were said in this book, that they were essentially fabricated by the abolitionist writer who was writing it through Solomon Northrop. So, um, there's a whole lot of literature on this as well. But see, this is where people get their material from, from Hollywood, right? Genovese and Fogel and are not Hollywood. They are looking at the materials and saying, this is what they found. And so, um, this is an important discussion to have. And these two books, if you're going to read two books on slavery, you read Time on the Cross and you read Roll, Jordan, Roll, um, because they're the best, still the best. these arguments that people are, I mean, you have the 1619 project, which we talked about, I think once, uh, which is based on a book, which is, we're going to have a review of that book, uh, next week, uh, which is completely hogwash. I mean, it's, it's awful. Um, and Genovese and Fogel and Eggerman had already took down this position 30, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. Um, so, regardless, uh, you have this, this uh, conversion of Genovese. And Kathy talks about this. And he says, you know, it was, it was looking at these documents and seeing that the South was so religious. They were a deeply religious people, Southerners were. Even those that had their moral failings, as G- Genovese brings up James Henry Hammond who was by no means a good Christian at all, but he had to speak to a Christian society. So that religion, that old religion, the older religiousness of the South was so important for the fabric of Southern continuity and for the fabric of Southern regionalism and identity. And so you had, again, distinctiveness. The South considered themselves a nation. Southerners considered themselves a nation Before they even had this confederacy. Now, Drew Gilpin Faust would say, well, it's all about slavery. It's not. Genovese ripped that whole thesis apart in his mind of the master class. Uh, Her book, Confederate Nationalism, which is just complete bunk. But Genovese tore that down in his mind of the master class. So you have this regionalism manifested in things like religion or a political expression or anti-imperialism, which is the Jason Morgan piece. And how important that... Now, Southerners could be imperialists. I mean, this is not to say that Southerners were not at times. So they were. But the Southern tradition, as, ex, as explained by Washington and Jefferson and Madison and Monroe, and many presidents following that, they just followed Washington's lead, was anti-imperialism. And, of course, you had two distinct... Peoples, one that was extremely imperialistic, the North, and its cultural imperialism, the other the South, which was not. The South was never culturally imperialist. The North was. The North wanted to ensure that everyone was like them. And so that trans—that was transferred into American imperialism in the 19th century, uh, the Spanish-American War, the support for Cretan independence, and you just take your pick. You go down the line and you'll find Northerners, I mean, look. The Platt Amendment, which was so viciously, it's now excoriated. The Platt Amendment. was Orville Platt of Connecticut. And Elihu Root, the Secretary of War, who was really the author of that. I mean, this is where it allowed the United States to constantly intervene in Cuba. You had the uh, American Indian Reservation System, which was uh, essentially created by Northerners. To ensure that these American Indians became good Yankees, right? So I mean, this is this is certainly part of it. And Jason Morgan does a fantastic job in this book on American on. I'm uh, sorry, Empire. It's uh, the uh, the title of the book is um, American Empire: Global History by A. G. Hopkins, um, and he he compares Hopkins compares the United States with the British, but as as Morgan points out, it's not really the America. It's the North. That's the important part. So when we look at that idea of a love of place, and then, of course, where you have barbecue, um, this piece by John Shelton Reed, which was originally published in the American Conservative, we have uh, access to it on the website for about 90 days, Um and they graciously let us republish this. John Sel- John Shelton Reed, great Southern historian, so he's a sociologist actually, but more a cultural historian than anything else. Um, he wrote this piece on barbecue? And I-, and I want to look at the last couple of paragraphs. Um, and he says this. He says a parable. In England, the homely native red squirrel is being driven out by the aggressive and invasive North American gray variety. Peter Coates writes that greys are the red, delicious apples of the squirrel world. The red squirrels are like endangered old time local varieties. With peculiar names like Polly whitehair and what's true of apples and squirrels is also true of barbecue. An ecologist would say that we're seeing decreasing biodiversity, increasing uniform ecosystems. Mass barbecue is the invasive species. Its progress seems to be relentless. I have a problem with that. For one thing, if the climax stage of the barbecue landscape leaves no room for folk barbecue, it would mean that the end of the community barbecue tradition. Purveyors of mass barbecue may claim that they offer something for everyone, but it's not really for everyone. Lawyers and construction workers, cops and college students, cowboys and hippies, preachers and sinners, rich and poor, black and white, all kinds of people used to gather in folk barbecue places like Stammy's Inn, Greensboro, North Carolina, to eat $4 barbecue sandwiches for lunch, But at the International House of Barbecue, the prices are higher and the ambiance is thoroughly middle class. A guy with his name stitched over his pocket would be out of place. Moreover, the triumph of mass barbecue will mean that you can't tell where you are by what you're eating, and that will be a shame. Peter Coates writes that concern for the red squirrel entails the same commitment to the survival of local heritage, community identity, and ethos of diversity, and invests the championing of local Cheeses and apples against the tasteless universalism of international agribusiness. Well, some of of us feel that way about local barbecue traditions. I've lived in North Carolina for 60 years, but I love Texas barbecue in Texas. I love Memphis barbecue in Memphis, Kansas City barbecue in Kansas City, and even mustard sauce South Carolina barbecue in South Carolina. Barbecue helps to put the there there. Places that try to serve barbecue from everywhere are really serving barbecue from nowhere. For people from nowhere... Four people from nowhere, and I say to hell with it. Right. This is about the regionalism I said. So you have you have things that define the South, and it's that love of place and the local, which is certainly the most interesting part, in my mind, of the South. This is why I wrote the little piece on Friday, A Love of Place. It's about music, and I had 13 different... No, I'm sorry, 15 different songs. I put 15 different songs, each one representing a state. You see, Southerners have always, always thought of their state. You you do have people that sing to New York, or you have songs, other states. But there's nothing that says the South like Sweet Home Alabama. It is the Dixie of the 20th century. It is the most recognized Southern song. And so, of course, it's on this list, but I have one for every state. And some of these are from unknown bands or people that if you don't know a lot about Southern music or Southern, you're not going to recognize. I mean, Missouri. I have a song from Missouri from from Mama's Pride, great band from the nineteen seventies. Maryland, you've got jazz the jazz standard, Maryland, my Maryland, when it was not racist to play Maryland, my Maryland. You had Kid Ory and Louis Armstrong and all these jazz musicians playing this song. Clearly, does that make them racist for playing Maryland great tune, Maryland, my Maryland, or uh, Molly Hatchet and Gator Country for Florida or couple of songs from Carolina the Marshall Tucker band from South Carolina playing Blue Ridge Country Skies or a more recent song Josh Turner the country musician from South Carolina and of course you could have had Charlie Daniels singing Carolina he's got a couple of different songs of Carolina North Carolina Charlie Daniels but I have Charlie Daniels for Tennessee the Charlie Daniels band which had a great tune about Tennessee Daryl Scott Kentucky Harlan Kentucky Uh, Ray Charles Georgia on my mind and uh, a Texas band, Whiskey Myers, but singing a song about Mississippi titled Mud. Great tune. Real tune defines Ray, Ray Wiley Hubbard, which if you're <laughs> screw you, from, we're, you're, we're from Texas. Great tune. And then uh, the band of heathens from Louisiana Hurricane and Jerry Lee Lewis. Uh, Take me back to old Virginia and Jimmy McCracklin for Arkansas. And then a little tune. uh about Delaware, which is not often considered a southern state, and it's not today. Delaware is not a southern state today, but the people in the rural areas of Delaware are still much more southern in their habits and culture than people recognize. But this says a lot about place and a love of place, and that's one of the important things we can think of when we think about the south. And so that regionalism, that identity, uh, the love of, of home, hearth and home, That's what Southerners were constantly defending throughout American history for 400 years. Until next time, good day.